all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. And now, your host for today's program, Dale Throneberry. Hi, and welcome to Veterans Radio. My name is Dale Throneberry, and what we're doing is a special program today. We're going to be replaying a program from June of, of uh, 2016 about the Ghost Army. And the reason that we're doing this is that recently the Ghost Army has received the Congressional Gold Medal. And this is for their actions during World War II. And for those of you that have listened to the program or know about the Ghost Army, it's pretty exciting. And I think you're going to really like this because with these people designed all sorts of camouflage, fake tanks, fake airplanes, fake everything. Uh, it was a great story. And so we're going to be listening to that program. And then at the end of the program, we're going to be, uh, have a short interview with the author of the book, uh, Ghost Army. That's uh, Rick Beyer. And so we'll finish that up with them. But before we get to that, i got to get our sponsors out there. So number one is Legal Help for Veterans. If you uh, need any help with a disability claim, please call Legal Help for Veterans at 800-693-4800. The National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC, is the nation's leading third-party authority for certification of veteran-owned businesses. For more information, go to their website, nvbdc.org. Uh, the Charles S. Kettle VA Medical Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So for more information for them, go to va.gov slash Ann Arbor Healthcare. So let's get right into that story. We're going to be talking to Rick Beyer. And also we have a veteran who was part of the group, John Jarvie. Without further ado, here is our story from June 5th, 2016, the Ghost Army. And welcome to Veterans Radio on this almost 72nd anniversary of the invasion of Normandy. That's right. The Western Allies in World War II launched the largest amphibious invasion in history when they assaulted Normandy, uh, located on the northern coast of France, on June 6, 1944. Wow. This is, and this is what we're going to be talking about today because we're going to have a great guest on today, a number, a couple of great guests actually. We're going to be taking a look at the Ghost Army of World War II, and this is, um, well, I can't tell you because it's secret, but it's, well, it's not secret anymore. But it, it talks about the diversions and distractions and everything else that the um, the army did for the uh, invasion of Normandy, and then the march across Europe into uh, Germany. And these guys are, are, are really, so I'm really excited. It's an amazing story. Uh, some of you may have seen the documentary on PBS, uh, came out in 2013. The book recently came out it's called The Ghost Army of World War II by Rick Beyer and Elizabeth Sales. And I think you're going to really enjoy the story. Plus, we have a veteran who was part of the Ghost Army. So that's going to be cool. Said, And we're going to be taking a real quick break here. And we're going to be coming back talking with uh, Rick Beyer, uh, one of the authors of The Ghost Army of World War II. This story, you gotta, you got to stay tuned and listen to it. This is really kind of cool. Uh, this is technology before there was technology. So you're listening to Veterans Radio. We'll be right back. We are back on Veterans Radio, and this is the Army we're going to be talking about, but not really the Army that we're all familiar with, especially the World War II Army, uh, the one that we've all heard about throughout our childhood and school and history and so on and so forth. Uh, this is the Ghost Army of World War II, 
And it's kind of a, an, an interesting story. It's a top-secret unit that, the, that deceived the enemy by using inflatable tanks, sound effects, all kinds of audacious fakery and, and trickery and so forth. And uh, joining me on the line right now is one of the authors, and that is Rick Beyer. Rick, welcome to Veterans Radio. Dale, glad to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you for agreeing to be on the program. I know we had to make one change, but this this is a great story. And, and let me get, like, let me get back here and, and introduce our other guest real quick, so I know I don't want him to forget that that you know that we know that he's there. And this is one <laughs> one of the veterans that participated in this organization. This is John Jarby, and John, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you, and I understand that you're in New Jersey. Well, so they tell me. <laughs> the last time you, the last time you looked, right? That's true. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm uh, as a former New Jerseyite. I wanted to say I would say hi to you, and and um, I'm anxious to talk to you, and, and we'll be we'll be going back and forth between you and Rick as we go along. Good. Okay. I like that. All right, Rick. So so tell me about this twenty uh, third. Um, I just had it written down here, and I put it away. Uh, the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. Those are the guys. And I'm, I'm glad you're letting me go first, because if John talked first, I would never get a word in edgewise. So I'm glad I get one shot before he starts talking. Okay, before we get into, before we get into the real stories of what happened over there, Rick, then we'll let you go. Um, so, yeah, we've got the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. Uh, they, they're, they're better known as the, by some as the Trojan horse, build, horse Builders of World War II. Well, this is an amazing unit, uh, Dale, um, because their whole mission on the ground in World War II was deception. It's a thousand or so guys who are trying to impersonate other American units, if you can kind of wrap your arms around that, impersonate other much larger American units in order to divert German attention away from the real units, away from what's really going on, and trying to convince them that something else is going on so that when those real units attack or whatever is supposed to happen, the Germans won't be prepared for it. And as you mentioned, they, are, they go to war with some uh, fantastic deception tools. They have inflatable tanks, trucks, airplanes, etc., for visual deception, and John Jarvie can tell you more about that because he worked with some of that stuff. They had uh, sound effects uh, for sonic deception. They did radio deception. They even did, you know, impersonation, setting up phony headquarters, impersonating generals, all sorts of crazy stuff that was kept secret for more than 40 years after the war. Well, I, I found it a fascinating story, and I'm so grateful that I that I actually read through the whole book um, because it. Me too. <laughs> well, the, <laughs> there are so many different things about this book, folks. That tell us a little bit about how this organization got started, Rick. Well, the, the, this was kind of a, first of all, it was really inspired by British deception efforts. The British are, are past masters at deception. They had done some very good deceptions in North Africa. They were uh, kind of running this deception to make the Germans think the D-Day landings were happening someplace else. And the American intelligence officers were basically saying, okay, we like what the British are doing. You know, wh how can we incorporate deception? What can we do that would that would be the very best thing? And so uh, they came up with this idea of this mobile multimedia traveling deception unit, 
They sold it in. It was approved at the highest levels, and uh, they threw it together pretty quickly in the uh, four or five months before the invasion of Europe. Uh, and, and these guys, uh, one of the things that's, I think, most impressive about them is that they sort of had to figure it out on the fly. They, they, it's not like they spent years training to do the deception mission. They had a few months of training. They ship them over to England. They get a, a few weeks to work with their tanks, you know, their inflatable tanks and the other stuff, and then bingo. They're on the ground in Europe, and they're expected to be able to pull off these amazing deceptions, which they do. I, th- I think oh, it's amazing. I think we're all familiar with the the um, inflatable tanks and everything that they did to deceive the Germans, you know, about where, you know, where they were going to invade and, you know, and the tanks and so forth before they, they actually ended up at Normandy. But I was not aware of, of this whole ghost army thing at, at all. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm really fascinated by the whole thing. Uh, John, we're talking with uh, John Jarby here. And, and John, how did you get involved with the ghost army? Well, it uh, wasn't too uh, hard to do. The the word gets around somehow, and it got through a lot of the art schools in the East, and I I suppose in other states, too, of uh, an outfit that was forming, and not specifically in, was it printed that it was going to be a ghost army or what uh, was going to be in it. But uh, anybody who had artistic talent, could apply. I think that's, that's a, how it started. Yeah, that's one of the things that I found most interesting is that so many of the people that were part of the Ghost Army were artists in civilian life. Rick. Yes, and to clarify, um, so so when they formed the the Ghost Army, they formed it from pre-existing units because they had to do it in a hurry. Mm-hmm. So to handle visual deception, they picked the unit that John was in, which was probably a couple of years old at that time which was a camouflage outfit. And that's why it was the 603rd Camouflage Engineers. And that's why art students like John Jarvie, like Bill Blass, uh, artists like Ellsworth Kelly and Arthur Singer and all these other people heard about it and were recruited into it. Because if you're going to do a camouflage unit, you want to have artists be involved because they've got an eye for that. And then when they were creating the deception unit, they said, well, who should we have to do the visual deception? Oh, we'll pick the camouflage unit. And that's yeah. how they end up being in the uh, in the 23rd headquarters and doing deception. Okay. Can, uh, John, were you involved in that uh, bomber plant in Maryland that they camouflaged? Yes, we were. And we, we had to save it from destruction, as a matter of fact. Uh, it was a, a huge cover, of, and it stretched on poles, possibly uh, 175 to 200 feet in the air, and it covered an area maybe uh, half a mile square. Okay. Well, we're, we're... And there was a blizzard in January, <laughs> and it got so heavy it started to collapse. The Uh-oh. I th- so this they is, sent it, our unit down to climb up the poles to get on top of the collapsing net and shovel all the stuff off. So that was how we were christened. Oh, okay. <laughs> to help with camouflage. I, 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 I thought it was an interesting story because, of course, we have Willow Run here in Michigan where they, they, they built many, many airplanes, of course. And this was a, a similar size, it sounds like, um, building. That was in Maryland, and of course that was much more susceptible to possible German bombing. And what they did is, well, if I'm wrong, correct me here, guys. Um, 
you took the top of this building and through the use of camouflage and your painting talents made it look like it was a, almost a vacant field or a farmer's field. Well, we not only covered the top of the building, we covered a lot of the fields, too. I and uh, made it look like other fields, that's all. Made I, it look like green stuff and that there wasn't any factory there or I, any airplanes on the runways. Covered everything. I just think that's so cool. That's I, I, a big I, job. <laughs> well, the other thing, I, I'm going to go back to you, Rick, for a second, is the, the technology of 1944... Um, you know, is that we're using sound technology in here. Can you, can you describe a little bit of what they were doing with this? Sure. Well, let me start by um, uh, asking you and your audience if you've ever been lying in bed one night and you start to hear a sound downstairs or outside and your imagination starts to build on that and you think that maybe it's burglars or maybe it's a, it's a cougar in the backyard oh. or something's <laughs> right. going on and you're sort of filled with fear and trepidation. And that is sort of the idea behind sonic deception. It's using sounds at night to make it uh, seem as if American troops are moving in, tanks are moving in, action is happening, and kind of build it up in the imagination, theater of the mind, build it up in the imagination of, of German intelligence. And to do this, the technology they used, the state-of-the-art technology, of course, it was the hottest, newest thing. Uh, they, first of all, made sound effects records, vinyl records, uh, uh, recording all sorts of different sound effects, um, everything they, they could imagine real troops doing. And then they would use these to create, depending on the different deceptions they were doing, to create a particular audio program with the right sounds in it, and they would mix this down to a wire recorder. Chances are good that most of your audience doesn't know what a wire recorder is, but it's the predecessor to the tape recorder. Even that, I think a lot of people may have only yeah. know from the past. <laughs> and sound was recorded on a wire that's about the thickness of fishing wire. So it was literally a reel of wire. Two miles of wire could hold about half an hour of sound. And then they would play these wires. Uh, they had half-tracks, which is a vehicle that's half-truck and half-tracked vehicle. They put big 500-pound speakers on them and an and a amplifier system. And they would play these uh, sounds over these speakers with a range of 10 to 15 miles. And then there's one more part of that that's really cool because you've got different sound trucks. Maybe you string them out along a road over 15 miles along the road. And then you time the sounds so that it seems as if a convoy is moving. If you were listening, you can actually feel like you hear it moving along the road because one truck is going off and another truck is coming on, and they're overlapped. So you have this moving wall of sound. And the people who, who worked on this and, and other, other, there's many stories of people being fooled by this, other American soldiers, even the, the guys who worked on it themselves said, you know, uh, one of them, Dick Syracuse, said, that after a while, he said, I, I could begin to see tanks. I knew they weren't there. I knew it was phony, but I still sort of, I thought, oh, maybe there are some real ones there. I, maybe I see them. He said it was psychologically very unnerving. And it's a pretty good bet if you can fool your own officers right, who are doing yeah. the deception, you can fool the enemy. I would, I would think so. I'm just imagining the coordination that has to go along with this sound effect that's going down the road. You know, if it's if, if the sound could go 15 miles, and I'm I'm having a hard time even imagining the equipment available to do that. 
Well, they're really big 500-pound speakers, and maybe 15 miles is the maximum range, but they could definitely go, uh, very commonly go, uh, about 10 miles. And I have to tell you that one of the things that's very, very impressive about the way the 23rd carried out deception is all the attention to coordination and detail. This sounds, when you start to describe it, it's like, yeah, we throw up some inflatable tanks, oh, we play some yeah. sounds, oh, we mm -hmm. do some radio, and the enemy is fooled. It's, you have to be incredibly, extraordinarily careful in every detail to make sure there's no holes in that phony picture that you're putting out there. Right. And, so, and so that sound is one thing. You know, another thing would be if you're setting up inflatable tanks, man, they are not going to look real if you don't put tank tracks in. No, it I, turns I, I, out a 40-ton Sherman t tank is going to make a mark in the ground, and the inflatable tank doesn't. So now you've got to make sure that you've got guys on bulldozers setting up tank tracks and they, uh, that the tank tracks sort of look real and look like they came from a real place. So you really, you know, John is, is, is a fine artist, and like a fine artist, the ghost army had to paint a very detailed, careful picture of, for each deception. Well, that, that is very true. We're coming up on a break here, guys, so um, just hang on for a second. Uh, we're talking with Rick uh, Beyer, who is one of the authors of Ghost Army of World War II, and also uh, John Jarvie, who is one of the veterans and a participant with this Ghost Army, and I'm getting signals now that I'm down to one minute. And uh, so we're going to come back, and I want to talk about a couple of the uh, adventures that you guys had, not only in writing this story, but, John, you and some of the parts of uh, as you went across Europe, going, liberated Paris, and a couple of other stories that I've, I've read of yours in the book, John, that are very interesting. You guys would go into these certain houses of ill repute and um, draw, and draw pictures Damn. of all things. I, th I thought that was fascinating to me. But what a historical uh treasure trove of information it's ghost riders of world war uh, ghost i'm a ghost writer ghost army of world war ii we're going to be taking a break stay tuned don't go away come around on the other side we'll be right back you're listening to veterans radio the medal of honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the armed forces of the united states there have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award this is one of them. First Lieutenant John Fox called in artillery fire on his own position. Details after this. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. On Christmas night in 1944, enemy soldiers in civilian clothes gradually infiltrated the town Fox and his men were in, and by early morning, the town was largely in hostile hands. An organized attack by uniformed German units began at 4 a.m. Being greatly outnumbered, most of the American forces were forced to withdraw from the town, but Fox and other members of his observer party voluntarily remained on the second floor of a house to direct defensive artillery fire. Fox reported the Germans were in the streets and attacking in strength. He then called for defensive artillery fire to slow the enemy advance. As the Germans continued to press the attack towards the area that Fox occupied, he adjusted the artillery fire closer to his position. Finally, he was warned that the next adjustment would bring the deadly artillery right on top of his position. After acknowledging the danger, 
Lieutenant Fox insisted that the last adjustment be fired as this was the only way to defeat the attacking soldiers. Later, when a counterattack retook the position from the Germans, Lieutenant Fox's body was found with the bodies of approximately 100 German soldiers. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative. Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. We're back on Veterans Radio, and we're doing World War II today, the World War II music. Only it's not the traditional infantry type of army that we're talking about. It's the ghost army of World War II, the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. These guys would go in, uh, went into Europe with inflatable tanks, tape recorders, or not tape recorders, wire recorders, I guess they were, <laughs> and and uh, sound equipment and Costumes and everything else. And uh, our guests are the one of the authors of the Ghost Army World War II, Rick Beyer, and one of our veterans from the Ghost Army, and that's John Jarvey. Um, John, when you uh, joined up with this outfit, what what were your duties? Well, when when uh, I joined, just like uh, most other guys joining the army, your duties are KP and guard duty. And- <laughs> That's true. They they got to show you how to take care of everybody else. It seems like, um, but but what part were you most involved with? I, I know that you were part of the um, camouflage engineer battalion. Is that what you you did when you, the Ghost Army went into France? I think I just lost John. Rick, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I hope he's not carrying out a deception on you. Yeah, I think I he's not on the phone. I don't know. Hopefully we we'll get we'll 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 uh, we'll get him back on here. Um, I'm I'm just looking at at your website. Uh, the website is ghostarmy.org, and I'm looking at this tank, and it's a, an M4. It's a it's a blow up M4 tank, which I think is kind of cool. Was John involved with that, or is he most more into the art artsy stuff? Well, so John was in the uh, camouflage engineers, and mm-hmm. so he's involved, like all the other guys are, in um, in setting up uh, the inflatables when they needed to use them. He okay. is also, uh, if I remember correctly, that John was a, a driver for some of the recon patrols. So, of course, whenever the Ghost Army was like any other unit, in a deception, they're going to make it seem as if they're moving into an area where they've got to go uh, do reconnaissance. They've got to go get figure out where people are going to sleep, where they're going to camp, what's going to go on. And so John would be a driver for one of the officers uh, doing that kind of uh, reconnaissance. I know that's why he ended up being uh, up in uh, up in Luxembourg right in front of the, uh, the attacking German army uh, in December of 1944 in the Battle of the Bulge, and had to, they had to skedaddle out of there pretty quickly. So he was involved in that stuff, and, and, and at, at the Battle of Brest um, – 
And, of course, he could tell you this better than I, but he had a very close call with a couple of shells from a, a German 88 when they were observing uh, uh, the deception and the, and the ongoing battle. So he was involved in a lot of those different kinds of things. You know, we talk about the art that the soldiers did because a lot of, there were a lot of artists in the unit, and I've got a lot of their art in my book and in the documentary we did. But that's just what they did in their spare time. That's just like somebody might keep a diary, somebody is, is, is drawing or painting. You know, in the regular work day, they're, they're doing all the things that you do in the Army, and in particular all the things that you need to do to carry out these deceptions. And I'm sure, uh, given everything I know, a whole lot of it is you're lugging things from here to there, yeah. you're setting things up, you're taking them down, et cetera, et cetera. All right. I think we have John back on the line, don't we? John? Yes. Okay, we we found you. All right. I can't hear you. You can't hear me? No. I, well, it's very faint. Okay. Well, I can't shout too much or I'll b- blow the ears off of my poor technician over there. Um, let me know if you can hear this question. Did you ever set up any of these inflatable tanks? Oh, sure. Tell, tell me how it was to put those together. I'm, I'm looking here at, a, at a, a sheet that had it, you know, 20 minutes for this, 10 minutes for that. Well, I, I'd say you could say set up a, like a 70-ton tank in half an hour, 45 minutes. You have to put it together and then inflate it. Okay. And, and one of the things I noticed in the book is that you had to make sure that you kept it inflated. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the weather can change that. It got very hot. It could expand it. They're very tough, but uh, the weather does funny things. Well, yeah, especially to the to the gun turret, I understand. Right to the to the gun itself. Sometimes you guys would get up in the morning and it would be a kind of little limp. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, that that happened quite often. Sometimes you'd have to hold the gun up with a stick. <laughs> but how these guys That's are flammable, but it worked. Well, no, I know. I'm just sitting here going, you know, these guys fell for it. But, you know, from a 1,000 feet, you know, you don't know what it's going to look like. But but in addition to the tanks, you also had artillery pieces too, didn't you? Oh, we had a whole battery of guns. We had trucks and tanks of different sizes and even some pony soldiers. You did. How did they work out? Well, they, they worked out better than the rest of us. They just didn't do anything, which was their job. <laughs> <laughs> this is why this uh, to our audience. This is why I love talking to World War II veterans. <laughs> it's, it's just very. It's always fun. Um, it's, <laughs> so, John, tell me you um, when you came into France. I'm, I'm looking here that one of your first missions was called Task Force Mason. And that was in June 1944, right after uh, the invasion of Normandy. What was it like coming into France so quickly or so soon after that? I missed that. Okay, what I was... missed the last half of that question. Okay. What was? Oh, the... this is better. Uh... Oh, it's full. <laughs> okay. What? <laughs> what? Um, what was it like when you first arrived in France and you you had to do your first setup? I think it was called Task Force Mason. Well, I guess it was just like almost anybody else who wasn't in the infantry. We were unloaded 
on a pier or on a beach. We were half and half, and we had a march to uh, uh, various points uh, on land where they organized it because we landed in small bunches. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we we got to a watering point, uh, which was uh, what everybody wanted water, and we said we need water. And they so I said, okay, come. We got, they put us in trucks and took us going. I said, where the hell are they going to find water here? So we come into a clearing, and there was a huge swimming pool, like six feet deep, filled to the top with drinking water that the Army had provided. They think of everything. Yeah, Can it, you hear me? Yeah, I, I, they do think of things, everything. You know, logistics, people don't realize the logistics that go into, you know, moving a couple of million men, you know, all the way across France and into Germany. But just you guys from the Ghost Army, you were all over the place, weren't you? That's right. That's right. And uh, sometimes we uh, did a, a job that took three days, and then uh, we had to take off, and by the next morning uh, be someplace maybe 100 miles away to do another job. When it, it worked. It worked. We never had anything go wrong in uh, that regard. That's that's I find that amazing that that you guys were never really found out. Rick, I'm going to well, ask you. That. Oh, go ahead. I am too. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I am too. There there were uh, farmers, for instance, who uh, there was one of our artists uh, was uh, on sentry duty in a in a field in France right after we got there, and he. Uh, went down into the pasture where he was supposed to be, and there he found the farmer's cow was pushing a tanker on the field. <laughs> this is a rubber that, tank, folks. This is one of the inflated tanks. Yeah, yeah. That'll, <laughs> that'll ruin the illusion. <laughs> I, would, I would think so. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. My goodness. Well, you were involved, and Rick, I'm going to come back to you on this one. Um, the 23rd was involved with Patton, especially, uh, I'm looking here at my notes, in September of, of 1944. Um, this is uh, Bettenberg? Bet- Bettenberg. Absolutely. And, and, and I, I'll tell you about that, but I first just want to say I'm listening to John tell his stories, and it's amazing how matter-of-fact these guys can make this incredible story sound. Um, yeah. You know, because, of course, they're there, and they're doing a job, and they're just trying to get the job done and go home. And, of course, it, 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 it's so amazing what they did. But when I hear John or some of the other veterans talk about it, they can make it sound so, so matter-of-fact. But, but there in September of 1944, um, Patton uh, had raced across France and uh, had, was attacking the, the, the German army near the German border, uh, and the Germans were in some disarray. Patton was trying to take the fortress city of Metz and a... Uh, basically a hole opened up in the line uh, to the north of there, about 20 miles of uh, line that was pretty much undefended. And so uh, the Army sent the Ghost Army in uh, around September 18, 1944, to hold this weak spot in, in Patton's line. And this ended up being their longest deception. It was about uh, eight days, seven days long, I think, seven or eight days, uh, and it was pretty nerve-wracking because, of course, the longer you try to carry out a deception like this, the better chance there is that you'll be found out. 
Um, and the Germans were certainly sending in patrols, you know, trying to infiltrate American lines. And so there was a lot of uh, nervousness about whether or not they could pull this off. But but they did. And, you know, I, I um, you know, what I made in addition to the book, I produced a documentary, the PBS right. documentary, The Ghost Army. And we were screening it once, and a man came up to me afterwards, a very erect man, and he's obviously in his mid to late 80s, and he said to me, I was a, a tanker under Patton at Metz, and I never heard of this unit, and I think I just might have seen a, a story about a unit that might have saved my life. Because, of course, if the Germans could have gotten through that weak spot, if they'd known it was there, they could have gotten behind Patton and wreaked all sorts of havoc. But because the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops was putting on their show for that section of the front line, the Germans never knew. I, I, I just, again, I find this story fascinating. We need to take one more break, guys, and we'll come back. And I want to talk, we will have about 15 minutes left. So we'll talk a little bit about the Battle of the Bulge and then your race to the Rhine like everybody else. All right, gentlemen? Mm-hmm. All right. All right. We're talking with Rick Byer and, and veteran uh, John uh, Jarvie. The book is Ghost Army of World War II. You got to read this. This is a collector's item, I think, for many of you history buffs out there. We're going to take another quick break, and we will be right back after these messages. When the lights go on again, all over the world, and the boys come home again. We're back on Veterans Radio. We're talking with Rick Byer, author of The Ghost Army of World War II and, and Army veteran John uh, Jarvie. And, John, I played that song specifically for you. As, I love it. It's <laughs> sort of a welcome home. But also, I, I can't remember if it was you or not, but in one of the towns when the lights finally came back on. Oh. Yes. W- were you there? Was that, was that in Luxembourg? I, I was in Luxembourg City, and it was pitch black, and we know the war had ended. We found that out while we were in our barracks. They said, anybody wants to go into town, get on the truck. No. So, truck took us in, and the city was black. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. But suddenly, a light went one light will dazzle you when there's nothing else. But then it was followed quickly all over. Lights in the houses and the windows were thrown open and the curtains blew out and everybody cheered. And until that time, you couldn't even see the guy next to you. But when the lights went on, you could see that it was mobbed, absolutely mobbed. And the hum of the crowd was wonderful. I'll never forget it. I... I I wanted you to tell that. I, I thought that was, a again, a, the book itself is made up of all of these anecdotal stories by many, many of the veterans. Rick, I want to congratulate you on, on being able to get in contact with all these guys and being able to record them. Uh, it, it must have been a, it must have been a really a, a task of love to do that. Well, it certainly, it certainly was. And, you know, I started, uh, on this project 11 years ago, and I should point out that I, it started because of John's niece, Martha Gavin. And Martha, um, 
you know, who had only recently learned of the of what her uncle had done in the war, was excited by it and thought somebody should make a documentary about it. And a mutual friend introduced us, and and I became fascinated by the story. And so I went down to the um, the last official reunion that the unit had, which was in 2005 in Washington, D.C., and I interviewed John, and I interviewed five other veterans there, and that's kind of how I got started. And I've always said that, that the Ghost Army, I, 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 don't, I don't know if, if I'm holding on to the Ghost Army or it's holding on to me, but it's such an amazing story, and I was, I, you know, I, I just felt like hardly anybody knew about it. And some people had written about it before me, but, but there wasn't a lot of knowledge about it. And I thought it was very, very uh, impressive and very wonderful and very inspiring. And so that's why um, the documentary and then the book, and then beyond that now, you know, I, I'm leading a, a Ghost Army tour oh. uh, of Europe. <laughs> I, I did one two years ago. We're doing another one this year through... Um, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, and okay, they have a right. website. People can find out about that. It's in September. Uh, I also am working very hard right now to to raise support in Congress to award the Ghost Army a Congressional Gold Medal, which and I know your audience knows this is very, very different from a Medal of Honor, not right. the same thing at all, but a Congressional Gold Medal, uh, and we have support from... 45 uh, congressmen or so at this point and about half a dozen senators. And we are really trying to encourage anybody moved by this story to go to our website, ghostarmy.org, and, and find out there how they can contact their congressman and contact their senator and, and try to advocate for this. Because, listen, you know, it's you think about what they did. It's using creativity and illusion to save lives, right? It's using imagination as a weapon. I mean, as a, but as a weapon not to kill so much as to avoid, you know, being killed uh, mm-hmm. and to avoid having a, a head-on confrontation, but instead trying to take the smart way, win the war, losing less lives. It's pretty amazing stuff. It it it, it is. Uh, John, I wanted to ask you about that. Your last uh, mission, I guess it was in Europe. It's uh, was it uh, Operation Virzen. Uh, just before the end of the war, you're approaching the Rhine River. Mm-hmm. How did that? How did that go? I mean, you you had. I mean, obviously you survived it, but this was it. This was the end. You, you were trying to prevent the uh, Germans from coming back across the river. Isn't that right? Well, we wanted to cross the Rhine. It's as simple as that. And we had our minds made up, so it got worked out. I have. Uh, Wonderful stories about that. Well, feel free to but, uh, share. I know know the details of the battle if if you're interested in that, but I don't think you're. you're no, I'm more, I'm more interested in the, in the in the personal side of it. Well, I had a childhood buddy. He was born about two months before me, and we've been close all our lives. So I right, to get away from that. He went into the army. I went into the Army. He was in the tank destroyers, and I was in the 603rd. We never saw one another during the war until that Rhine crossing. Well, we didn't see one another then, but that's the crux of my story. I saw him maybe 
three months ago. And he said to me, hey, John, you know, I just figured out you saved my life. Your unit saved my life during the war. And I said, how did I? <laughs> I never saw you during the war. How did I do that? And he talked about the Rhine crossing. The unit that was supposed to cross live against the Germans was his unit. And the chances that he would have gotten killed are like 75%. And our unit went in and deflected all that battle. So he came out of it alive and we made the crossing. It, now, that's oversimplifying the story, but that's the basis of it. Well, it, 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 it's simplifying it, but it's true. Uh, I mean, I know there are various figures, according to your to your book, Rick, where they're saying anywhere between twenty and thirty thousand lives might have been saved. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah. That's the that's the estimate, you know. And it, of course, it's hard to know, but right. um, but you know, we do know that there were numerous occasions in which the Germans bought these deceptions, and we do know that they were never found out, and we do know specifically in this last operation, the Ghost Army was pretending to be the 30th and uh, 75th uh, divisions when they were crossing the 30th and 79th, maybe. Anyway, when they were crossing the the Rhine River, uh, and they made it seem, they basically, you have a 1,000 guys in the Ghost Army pretending to be the 30,000 guys of these Two divisions, they made it seem like that crossing would be 10 miles to the south. That deception alone may have saved thousands of lives. And as one of the historians that I talked to said, you know, that alone probably was worth it, worth the whole unit, even if everything else hadn't worked. That one deception was probably worth having this amazing unit for. Right. Well, I, in, in reading the book, there's a, there's a little short story in there about some guys that were there getting ready to cross the Rhine and it turns out that your tank regiment wasn't real and they they got a little upset. Well, yeah, you know, and there's a there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of stories about uh what happens with uh when the when the other soldiers are there and they're not uh they're not quite realizing what's going on and I know during the Battle of the Bulge there was a story where uh the, the, some other units thought the 75th uh, infantry was in the line next to them uh and it was actually the Ghost Army and of course the Ghost Army uh doesn't have a lot of tanks uh, and, and guns to bring to support. So when the Germans attacked, these these guys uh, on the other part of the line couldn't figure out what the heck was going on with the 75th. Where were those, you know, SOBs from the 75th? Why weren't they there? Well, that's 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 part of the deal with deception. And so, uh, but but the point is that these guys were there to uh, 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 to to basically, as John says, deflect or divert the Germans away from the troops. And they did that more often than they did anything else, and, and really, it's to their credit. It, it Again, it's an amazing story. We're talking with Rick Byers. He's the author of The Ghost Army of World War II. And, again, for all you history buffs out there, this is something that you need to have. What I love is at the end of, the, of, the, of your book, Rick, you've got um, biographies of some of the people that are involved in the story. And there are some very, very talented people that were involved with this 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, not in, not including the you know uh, the, the designer Bill Blast, but also well-known authors and and well-known um, artists. 
Yeah, I mean, Ellsworth Kelly, who was a famous minimalist painter and sculptor, and Arthur Singer, who was an incredible and uh, nationally known wildlife artist, uh, one of the guy who was one of the uh, um, creators of the TV show The Munsters. <laughs> Uh, you know, you have you had a really wild array of talented people who who were part of this unit, and it is, it is fascinating going on and trying to see other things they did. I don't know if you've ever had a Ham's beer, Dale, but the Ham's I, beer I, bear was created by a Ghost Army veteran, Cleo Hovell. Oh, thank who was goodness an for that! Guy in Chicago, so <laughs> they reach into all sorts of interesting parts of American life. Well, it it certainly does. And, John, I see your biography is that you were the art director of, uh, for Fairchild Publications, which is Women's Wear Daily, and did supervise artists and things. And that, that's oh, yeah. Only... Yeah, I had a full crew, artists and writers. I just think and it's... I left there. I went to an agency that did uh, Buick and uh, opened a whole new book for them. Wow. Well, um, I, I encourage you guys to get... Get buy the book. Uh, these pictures, <laughs> you guys already have I your have own one. copy. I don't need to buy it. Yeah, I know you don't need to buy it, but everybody <laughs> needs to buy it. Where? Oh, by the way, where would they buy this book? Oh, uh, well, the book is available <laughs> on Amazon, of course, where everything is available, right? Uh, and uh, it's it's available in through bookstores. Probably a lot of them don't have it in stock right now, but they can order it for people. So those are the two best ways to get it. Okay, and we can uh, you can buy it through Amazon through our website also, folks. So I, I would encourage you to do that. And also, I know that you can go to Netflix if you want to see the uh, documentary. Exactly right. And of course, you can go to our website, ghostarmy.org. To learn more about the unit, about the tour, about the gold medal campaign, about other stuff that we're doing to try to preserve and honor the legacy of this amazing World War II unit. Well, John and Rick, I want to thank you both very much for being on Veterans Radio. It's always such a privilege and an honor to talk to a World War II veteran. Um, it's like talking to my dad, and I appreciate it very much for you being on the program, John. And thank you. It's a pleasure. I'd just like to get the story out. I enjoyed this. Well, good. We'll, we'll do everything we can to get the story out even further now so everybody yeah. will know. You know, even though the, the government didn't even want anybody to know about it for about 40 years, I know I was involved in something that they didn't want to know about for about 40 years either. And uh, <laughs> Rick Meyer, thank you very much for uh, being on the program. Ghost Army of, of World War II, let us know. Keep us in mind if you come up with any of these other ideas, and we'd be happy to uh, help promote your, your stories and your trip to Europe. All right, well, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure, Dale. Okay. We're back here on Veterans Radio, and joining us live after listening to the program from 2016 is the author of Ghost Army, and that is Rick Beyer. And, Rick, welcome back to Veterans Radio. Oh, I'm so glad to be back here. Thanks so much for having me, Dale. Well, the reason that I obviously we're doing this program is that uh, the Ghost Army was finally gotten some of its recognition, and they re uh, President Biden has authorized the, the Congressional Gold Medal to be given to the Ghost Army. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, this has actually been a seven-year effort to uh, convince Congress to award this unit with the Congressional Gold Medal, which is the highest honor Congress can bestow. And it started because uh, I felt uh, like, and other people felt, that, that, well, people were starting to recognize what the Ghost Army had done. There was never any official uh, recognition. And there had been some talk during World War II about 
uh, a presidential unit citation, but it never happened. And so uh, we started this effort. And I think what's really cool about it is that this was really a grassroots effort. And it, well, there wasn't any big corporate entity behind it or money or voting block or celebrities or anything. It was just a bunch of people who passionately felt that, that this should happen. And it took quite a long time, but eventually we did it. And And one of the things that's different about congressional gold medals is you have to actually convince two-thirds of the House and Senate to co-sponsor before you could even bring the bill to the floor. So that meant that we had to personally convince 350 House and Senate offices to support this bill. And that's what took seven years, I think. That's what took a long time to do. Well, that's understandable. And in today's world, I'm surprised you were able to do that. <laughs> well, that's I, I think that's one of the things. It's it's a great story. I mean, obviously, the Ghost Army itself, as uh, people have heard, is a great story. And then you have this kind of uh, other story of the people who are so passionate about it that they're actually able to take uh, this issue to the fractious, disjointed Congress and, and get a bill passed and get President Biden to sign that bill into law. So that's a thrilling and amazing. Well, it, it, it is certainly um, a, a great opportunity to acknowledge these men and the story that they did and all of the things that they did. And uh, I just wanted to bring you on to talk about not only this award, but also the other things that are going on out there. You've got your the Ghost Army um Foundation or .org, a nonprofit organization. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. We started uh, the Ghost Army Legacy Project, and the mission of this nonprofit is to preserve and honor the legacy of the of the Ghost Army. And so we've done a number of things. We have now uh, put up two historical markers in Europe, one in Luxembourg and one in France, on the spot where operations took place by the Ghost Army. And we're working on a, a third and possibly a fourth there as well. Uh, and we have been involved in creating museum exhibits. Uh, so uh, with our assistance, the National World War II Museum created a, a museum exhibit uh, that was there in 2020. It opened there in 2020, and it's now traveling. So its next appearance is going to be at the Illinois Holocaust uh, Memorial in Skokie, uh, Illinois, just outside Chicago, starting in June, and then later it'll be in Nevada. Uh, and we've been involved. We have another smaller exhibit that we created that has done some traveling, and that'll be going to Fort Wayne, uh, Indiana, this summer, where they're celebrating Bill Blass's 100th birthday. And of course, you know, Dale Bill was one of the members of this unit before he became uh, a super famous fashion designer. And we're involved in other things. I mean, basically, and that, that organization was very involved in the gold medal effort, you know, trying to, to, to bring recognition to this story because I feel like it's a story that can be very inspiring. It's a story about people who use the out-of-the-box solution, who it's the crazy idea. Uh, you know, people make a bet on the crazy idea and the crazy idea works out. It's a story about people from very diverse backgrounds coming together to to create and carry out this deception mission. So I think there's a lot of reasons why uh, it's still relevant and important today, and that's kind of the message that our nonprofit is is going out there. And we do have a website also with a lot of primary source information on it for people who are interested in the Ghost Army, and that website is ghostarmy.org, ghostarmy.org, and we've got you know, diaries and letters and video interviews and 
massive amounts of material there for people who want to dig a little deeper. Well, I think people will want to dig a little deeper with this. And I'm really grateful that this whole thing was able to get kind of, you know, come back around again, you know, receive this gold medal uh, for at least some of them are still alive. Yeah, so we have 10 Ghost Army soldiers who are still alive that I'm aware of. And uh, we actually just um, discovered one, uh, you know, all the publicity that's been attendant around President Biden signing this bill led us to uh, discover uh, John Christman, a Ghost Army soldier in New Jersey, who we had not previously been aware of. But there's 10 guys, and they're I think they're all pretty excited. You know, they're very, um, as people from that generation are, they're a little bit, um, they're, they're calm. They're excited but calm. They're matter-of-fact about it. And it's like, yeah, that was our job. We did our job. And this is kind of unbelievable. I think they're a little sort of uh, shocked and surprised. I think their families are much more wildly excited but i think the soldiers themselves are are taking it in stride but do appreciate i think really appreciate uh that that recognition has come their way i just wish that it happened you know i wish we, we could have done it listen two years ago five years ago 10 years ago 40 years ago when there would be a lot more there to uh to uh take that recognition so do it, do do the individuals receive some sort of certification or notification and the families? I'm sure that you would like to get those out to the family as well. So uh, it's very interesting. So the uh, the gold medal itself, there's just one of them, and uh, it's made by the U.S. Mint. It's going to take a, a couple of years in that process, and it's an actual gold medal, three inches in diameter with about $30,000 worth of gold in it. And then they make duplicates uh, which they put up for sale. So we're going to make sure that every surviving veteran gets a uh, a duplicate of this, gets a, a copy of this medal. In addition, we're because that's going to take a while, we're probably going to try to do presentations to veterans over the coming months, to the surviving veterans, with uh, letters from some of the people involved in making this happen, with a facsimile of the bill, some other uh, surprise items in there, uh, and do that presentation. And then we're also trying to get material that, that can be available to families. I mean, obviously, we're not in touch with every family, and, and our organization doesn't have the, the resources to start, you know, purchasing duplicate medals for, you know, a thousand uh, families. But we're going to try to make sure that there's plenty of material out there that people can have that that very specifically honors their veteran and their soldier. Well, I think that's that's great. And, and I know the families especially, you know, this is what Grandpa did or Uncle Joe or whatever it might be. And I, I think, uh, you know, you may be getting some notifications, hopefully from this, uh, you know, story that we're doing today about that. What, what Again, remind us of what the units were that were part of this ghost army. So um, yeah, there's two overriding units. So there's the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, and that is kind of the larger unit. It did 21-plus deceptions in uh, Northern Europe, and it has inside it uh, four other subunits, the 603rd Camouflage Engineers, the 3132nd uh, uh, Signal Service Company Special, the, another unit just called the Signal Service, the, the Signal Company Special, and then the 406th Combat Engineers. And they're all part of the 23rd. Then separately, operating in Italy, was a Sonic Deception Unit, the 
33rd that operated on its own and in conjunction with some British and American armored units. And those are all the folks that are covered uh, by the medal. And, you know, in my view, uh, pretty much anybody who worked with them and the people at the Army Experimental Station who trained the sonic units and other folks like that are all broadly included as well. I mean, I think this really is for all the people who helped carry out this deception effort, this tactical deception effort on the battlefields of Northern Europe and Italy and, and made it a go. Okay. Well, there we are. We're all caught up now. We know that we, uh, we know all about the ghost army. We know about their award and we know uh, some great stories and opportunities for you, the listening audience to go and find more information at ghostarmy.org. So Rick, I want to thank you very much for being on the program again today and keeping us touch. Keep us, let us know what keeps going on in the future. Cause I'm excited to find out even more and more about that. I absolutely will Dale. And thank you so much for having me on. Okay. So that's the end of our program for today. We'll be back next week here on veterans radio. And until then you are dismissed. The end. Nice. Thank you so much.